Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Pete Enns. Pete is a professor of biblical studies at Eastern University and host of the Bible for Normal People podcast. He's also the author of many books, including most recently, Curveball, When Your Faith Takes Turns You Never Saw Coming, or How I Stumbled and Tripped My Way to Finding a Bigger God. You can get connected with Pete and his work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today we have the esteemed guest that I'm so excited to chat with, Pete Enns. Uh, Pete, you are a Bible scholar. You're a co-host of The Bible for Normal People, which is one of my favorite podcasts. Honestly, I, I will say like it's probably the second best theology podcast behind A People's Theology, hosted by Mason Meninga. So, uh, yeah. you know, you're, you're, you're in the top two, at least. We're up uh, there, man. We're, one, we're, yeah, we're reaching Mount Olympus, Zeus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of the lower gods. That's fine. I'll take it. You might be able to dethrone me at some point, I'm sure. Pete, you have a, you do a lot of other things in the world, including being a grandpa and a superhero grandpa. Uh, mm-hmm. You're a big baseball fan. There's a million other things to you. But who is Pete Enns to Pete Enns? <laughs> a very tired person who has wondered where the time went. You know, I just <laughs> had my birthday a couple of weeks ago. I'm 62, which is fine. I know I look not a day over 61. But, that's right. Um, yeah, you only you only look a couple days, uh, you know, over sixty two. That's all you look. At about a week or so over sixty two. Yeah. yeah. That's right. So um, that's a hard. You know, that question requires a tremendous amount of reflection, which I haven't had the energy lately to reflect on anything. Little, I think it's just finishing <laughs> the book, the new year, turning a year older. My cat pees all over the place, which is marmalade is my cat. And and a sort of an internet sensation, and and she she doesn't peel over the place, but I have to watch her because she gets into these moods. She's a feral cat, so anyway, so that takes up a lot of my time. I like walking outside if that means anything to anybody. I actually like walking in the woods, and oh. I always have, and I feel very connected to God in a non. Uh, how do I put this? Sort of n- not the man upstairs kind of thing, but just God's presence in everything and everyone kind of thing. And and um, I pay attention to trees and leaves and squirrels and deer and things like that. So that's, that's a lot of fun for me to do. Wow. I feel like I'm, I'm talking to Brian McLaren right now. Oh, really? Oh, that's nice. I'll take that as a huge, he's one of my favorite people. He's great. He's, he's yeah, really wonderful. I love Brian. Well, you released a new book or about to release a new book very, very uh, shortly called Curveball. Uh, and I love the ode to your baseball playing days. I think it's great. Uh, the subtitle is even better. It's one of the longer subtitles out there. In fact, you know, I think book titles should just be like sentences. You know, back in the like 200 years ago, yes. book titles were just long sentences. And uh, you're, you're kind of giving an ode back to that. But it's called Curveball When Your Faith Takes Turns. 
you never saw coming or how I stumbled and tripped my way to finding a bigger God. Uh, again, you almost wrote the entire book in the in the title alone. I think that's the, the cover is pretty much chapter one, I think, you know, if, but, you know, <laughs> exactly. I, I think it's good practice to let people actually know what the book is about. Right. And the, then you can't. Well, what's this book curveball? What is it? Is it a baseball book? No, it's not a baseball book. It's got baseball in it. But, you know, it just it lets you know that, oh, it's a metaphor. OK, yeah. Now, now, now we're on, now we're, you know, cooking with gas, as they say. So, yeah. You obviously have been in the theology and Bible world for quite some time. And but I think one of the cool things about being somebody your age who has been studying theology and the Bible your whole life is that there's probably new things always coming up where you're like, well, I didn't know that about theology or, hey, I didn't know that about the Bible. So what was one thing that you learned about the about theology or the Bible while you were writing this book that you didn't know before? A lot, actually, uh, which which uh, is one reason why I loved working on this book, because it was sort of out of my comfort zone. Um, not I wasn't treading going into territory I'd never explored before, but it's like I can write about the Bible all day, but this is more about God and the nature of God and the nature of faith and the Bible thrown in. So there were plenty of places for me to learn things. But I, I, I you know, I started to come to terms a little bit more knowledgeably with quantum physics, mm. which I highly recommend everyone to just watch YouTube videos or watch, you know, Nova on PBS or something and just and just follow along with it because it is absolutely fascinating. But it's just, you know, because we have such a weird world and a weird universe, which doesn't act like cause and effect normal ways that things work in the big scale and the small scale that are very, very weird. And I think, you know, the, the, one of the things that the thoughts that I had was that, you know, man, God and mystery are like, you have to hold those things together all the time because Mm -hmm. we don't even understand physical reality very well. (laughs) You get physicists talking about what is reality. You know, I mean, there was this big debate in the 20th century about what's an electron. I, I don't know. I mean, if you guys can't figure it, I can't. But, you know, isn't God more mysterious and unknown than, isn't the creator at least as weird and out there as the creation itself? And mm-hmm. that got me thinking, that's one of the things that got me thinking very differently about God and and things that have been brewing for many years. I think, you know, today we might call it process theology or open and relational theology, which our friend Tom Ord is a phrase that he uses, which I really like, but just a different way of thinking about God that's not, um, how do I put this? It's It takes into account things that we know about physical reality. And I think if our theology can't have a conversation with physical reality, our theology is really not very helpful. Mm-hmm. It's more like a protective stance that keeps us always looking backward instead of looking forward. Yeah. I, I found myself reading a lot more science books over the last couple of years to learn about God than I am reading theology books. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. they pose the right questions to us, I think. And yes. um and it's not, you know, I think science is there's almost a priestly dimension to it, you know, <laughs> in a way. Um it's it's like only a few people can do this. You have to be almost chosen from birth. You have to be born into the right family or something. And then, and you can learn things that can actually unveil reality to the rest of us. And, 
you know, this connection between God and physical reality is very intriguing to me too. I'd say, you know, one of the things that I've, I don't, I've learned it or I've moved towards it is, you know, panentheism, which mm. freaks people out. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying, you know, God is a tree or a rock or something. I'm just saying that all things are connected to God and God is connected to all things intimately, deeply, because with the cosmos, the size that we have on the large scale and on the small scale, it's hard to think in terms of God is located someplace. You know, God's up there, right? What does that even mean? God is up there. There is no up in 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 our understanding of the nature of the cosmos. So, you know, I just, it, it made me just use different language. So instead of like God being a discrete being who's out behind one of the two trillion galaxies that are out there now, or just slightly above the earth, floating above a dome, the way uh, they might have thought of it in the ancient world, we have to use very different language to conceive of God. And mm-hmm. I welcome that because it reminds me that God's always out ahead of us and not sort of behind us saying, hey, come on back to the fold, go back to what was thought a couple thousand years ago. It's more, you have to keep moving ahead. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the task of faith to to keep moving ahead. I think mm-hmm. it's a task of theology to point us ahead. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, it's very, it, this is not boring anymore. This isn't like, trying to align all of our experiences with how God might be portrayed in first or second Kings or something, you know, it's just, which, mm-hmm. which doesn't connect very well with myself and with most people I know. So that's what you've learned about theology while you're writing this book. You've written a number of books and mm-hmm. I'm sure in each one of those book projects, you're learning something about yourself. Was there anything you learned about yourself while you were writing this book uh, that you didn't know about yourself before? Maybe there was something in you that you're like, didn't know that I had that in me. But yeah, anything you learned about yourself as you wrote this book? Because I think that part of a book project is just as interesting as what you might learn factually or whatever. I, I think what I what I learned was more gaining clarity on ideas that have been sort of bubbling under the surface, but I wasn't paying attention to them. And one reason I wrote this book, which is definitely more memoirish than the mm-hmm. other books that I've written, although truth be told, Mason, all my books are journaling. I mean, I they just don't come across that way, but it's all things that I'm thinking about that I want to think about more deeply. But um, with this, I think it's the, the self-knowledge was more yeah, I'm comfortable in certain theological spaces. In fact, I I thrive in some of those theological spaces that, you know, 20 years ago, I might not have known what to do with it. Mm. And 30 or 40 years ago, I might have just written somebody like me off pretty quickly. But <laughs> I just think the older I get, the more comfortable I am with the ambiguity of it all, the mystery of it all. Mm-hmm. And that's to me, that's very comforting. That's not a problem. That's actually, oh, thank God I don't have to learn everything. Yeah. Thank God there's no theology test one day when I'm up there or wherever I'm going after I shuffle off this mortal coil. I don't think I have to pass a theology test. I think theology is going to become very alive for me. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I often say to myself that I'm glad I'm the person that my youth group self would have feared. Uh, and in, I'm sure even, you know, 20, 30 years from now, I hope there's something about me right now that my 30 
you know, 30 years in the future self is like, right. ooh, I don't know about that. Like that Mason, that that was a little weird. Or yeah, uh, I, yeah I, I don't know about that. So, uh, but that shows, you know, growth, not only theological growth and spiritual growth, but just growth as a human being. Emotional growth. Yeah, of course. And all those things, it's hard to separate. I don't know about you, Mason, but for me, it's very hard to separate the intellectual, spiritual, and emotional side. Mm -hmm. And one thing that frustrates me a lot with certain theological debates is that it's always sort of put into the realm of intellect. Like we have to have better arguments and defeat each other. But there's an emotional component in all this too that drives us even to ask the questions that we're asking. And Mm -hmm. To me, that's a very important thing to put right up there in front of us. And um, like I said, I found a lot of comfort and uh, comfort's the wrong word, just just peace. You know, I I don't fret that I might be wrong because I know that I am. Mm-hmm. And it's not about a test again. Does he have to get at least an 87% of B plus to, in order to make it to wherever you go next? But I don't believe that. I, I well, believe your students that definitely is, do. They at least better hit that eighty-seven percent. Got to, yeah. That's. I mean, it's it's something to shoot for. But I just think that <laughs> you know maybe God grades on a curve. I don't know, but I don't think God grades. That's just you better it. hope I, God I, I grades on a curve. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know it's called grace, and we can get all those sort of labels we use for things. But um, I just think that it's all good, you know. Eventually, and. And I'm I'm saying that from a Christian angle, you know, right. um, God in Christ and it's all good. And others may understand this differently than I do, and I respect that. I, I but I can't speak for all of reality. I can only speak for what I've experienced, mm-hmm. which is a big part of the book. Actually, experience is a very foundational concept because our experience affects how we think about God. Right. Well, no, reading the Bible does. Well, how you read the Bible is actually a part of your human experience. You've been taught to do it. So your experience is invading you there as well. Mm-hmm. And our experiences, I don't know, Mason, I'm sure you've had this experience in, in, yourself in the past of being told that your experiences don't count. Right. Right. They get in the way of truth. It's uh, the, our experiences of the flesh, and so it should be distrusted. Right. As if our thinking isn't. Mm-hmm. You know, as if our reading skills aren't. Everything is. We, you, how can we escape our humanity in talking about faith? And what's, I think, very good news about the Christian faith, and there's this in Judaism as well, but, you know, it's, it's, it's been taken to another level in, in the Christian faith, is God's connection to matter, mm-hmm. like li- physical reality and matter and the incarnation Whatever that is, don't get me started on that because I don't I don't understand incarnation at all. But the idea is God's deep, intimate connection with our reality, and so I to me that says you know who you are is a unique human being, and we are all truly unique. Who we are that matters to God, and and our experiences and our intuition. There's another word we were told to be careful about, mm-hmm. right? Your intuition doesn't matter. It's it's sinful. You've just got to get back to the Bible and back to the theology that we're teaching you. But, mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff, it just, it means so much to me now. And it's its a faith for me that's worth waking up to every morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really relates a lot, especially your, your bit about matter, because I just did my thesis a number of months ago, and listeners who listen to every one of these episodes know I talk at at length about this, but my my thesis was about 
embodiment. And specifically, I basically tried to create like a systematic theology of embodiment. And yeah, cool. a lot of times when we talk about embodiment, we really talk about it in this really abstract way. And I, and I didn't want to do that. So what I did was actually study the physiology, specifically what's happening in our bodies during religious experiences. So I mm-hmm. actually went into all these different scientific studies about what's going on in our brain structure, what's going right. on throughout the rest of our body when we're having religious experiences. And then what I do in the second half of that thesis then is make theological conclusions about this is how we should understand God if this is true, that our bodies mm-hmm. have this kind of this kind of experience during religious right. experience. And this is what we should think about evil and sin and salvation and so on and so forth. So anyway, uh, I, I'm really still kind of in that mode of really thinking a lot about how matter really uh, really is deeply connected with the spiritual and with the theological even. Well, I mean, what what an irony. I think it's it's not it should be obvious, I think, within the Christian faith, but what what you're saying is not obvious to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't it be wonderful if our humanity is a deep connecting point with God, just who we are as we are, and getting to know ourselves better and what makes us tick. And you know, I don't I don't go around quoting John Calvin a lot, only because I have post-traumatic <laughs> stress disorder from, from Calvinism, but not necessarily from Calvin himself, but from whatever. Anyway, you know, Calvin is famous in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, those two-volume, his compendium of, of theology, um, where he begins by saying knowledge of self and knowledge of God are two sides of the same coin. You can't know God without knowing yourself. Mm. And then he says, and you can't know yourself without knowing God. I think that's generally true. I, I think that, and, and where we tend to not spend a lot of time is in the no, knowledge of our self part. We're in fact taught to ignore ourselves and who mm-hmm. we are, what makes us tick. What what are our fears? What are our loves? What are our joys? What's you know, uh, what, what's the stuff that just excites us? That that's not really relevant for the task of doing theology because theology is supposedly some objective discipline. And if there's anything less objective than theology, I'd like to know what it is. It, it is <laughs> not at all objective because we're dealing with things that um, are outside of our normal ways of knowing. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't prove God like we can prove a black hole or something, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I just it's like I said, it's it is exciting for me. And I think, you know, your thesis is really interesting in how you know, a, a systematic theology of embodiment. I would say another way of putting that is basically an interpretation of Christian faith mm. around that angle of embodiment. And mm. I think that's very, very valuable. You know, John Frankie, I don't know if you know John Frankie. Oh, he's yeah. a friend jo- of mine. Yeah, he's... yeah J- John uh, was the professor I had the most while I was doing my MDiv. Oh, great. That's yeah, remember yeah, we, so ran, John... we ran into each other at uh, AAR. This year? Yeah, remember we, we oh, good. Yeah, you guys were walking yeah, across so. the street and I'm like, John and Pete, what in the world? Oh, that's right. We were, I think John was drunk at the time. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> no, uh, and we just watched the World Cup final at my house a couple of weeks ago. So that was fun too. But, um, but you know, John has a book on, you know, a missional theology, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which just came out like a year or so ago or whatever. But I told John too, I said, John, that's not a book on missional theology. It's an understanding of Christian theology through a missional grid. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, what you're describing is a similar thing. You're looking mm-hmm. through a particular grid that opens us up to maybe different ways of thinking about 
those rigid classical categories that have a place that, that are really good places to start, mm-hmm. but might not be able to plumb the depths of our experience and our, our, our intuition. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the book. Uh, specifically, the, <laughs> we sorry, haven't done that yet. We, it's we, great, folks. Just buy it. Don't do what Mason did, who just asked for a free copy. Don't do that. You go You go buy yours. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, Ashley's going to give me a slap on the hand for, for how this is going. Um, yeah, right. So again, you using you're using this metaphor of curveball kind of to talk about the curveballs in in life that life throws at us, and yeah. specifically then like what are the kind of questions about our faith that happen that arise out of those curveballs that life throws at us? What was that first curveball in your life uh, that was thrown at you, and then really had you questioning your faith? Yeah, I mean, it, it's had to do with baseball and and being, you know, just loving the game my whole life and never wanting to do anything else other than play baseball. And and the older I got, the bigger I got, the 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 harder I could throw. I wound up being a pitcher in high school and college, and I got some professional interest when I was in college, which was just, you know, my everything was coming together. And part of my religious experience, I, I had a conversion experience in high school. At a church that I wouldn't go to now, but you know, I don't, I don't dismiss the church either because that was part of my life. You know, Richard Rohr always says, you know, you know, include the past but keep going, right? So mm-hmm. I try to do that with my church experience. But um, what I sort of caught there was how if you pray hard enough, you know, things will happen, and if your life's in line with God's will, it'll sort of happen. So. I sort of had that operating in my mind that, you know, this is something I want to do. It's a desire of my heart. And I was pretty good at it. And I was getting some attention from some scouts. And um, it looks like we're moving in this direction. And I had tryouts lined tryouts lined up for the summer after I graduated college. I was Shea Stadium where the Mets used to play. Um, I had a tryout with the Orioles, with the Phillies, and uh, with the Blue Jays. So that was fun. But the problem is that a week after my college season came to an end, I was practicing with a summer league team that I play on. And the coach said, hey, try a slider. And if you don't know what a slider is, folks, uh, a slider is a a, a ball that curves, but it's not a curveball. Curveball goes a bit slower and it's less stress on your arm. A slider puts a tremendous amount of stress on your elbow. You're throwing it way harder. You you, th- you throw it harder, and it's like the torque on your elbows. Like, like our bodies weren't made to do that. And now, you know, if you're a fan of baseball at all, you 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 hear of pitchers forever getting Tommy John surgery, which is replacing a ligament in your elbow with something from your thigh just to keep your arm together. And I probably would have been a candidate for that uh, if they had done that sort of thing back in 1982, but they didn't. Anyway, the point is that I I hurt my arm. And I didn't know it, but that my baseball life was over at that point. And I tried icing it. I was rehabbing it. I had all these uh, tryouts to to get ready for. And Mason, there are times I couldn't lift my arm to comb my hair or brush my teeth. It hurt that much. But I was able to get it together, adrenaline, Ben Gay, you know, and I show up. And I did okay, but but not enough. And that was like, it took me two years to to begin really coming to terms with Maybe God isn't my personal butler who does things transactionally. You know, if, mm-hmm. if I have a good enough life and I pray hard enough, I do my devotions and only listen to Christian music, 
all these good things are going to happen to me. And instead, what I found was you know, a bigger and better God who maybe even participates in our pain with us rather than being the butler to, or, or, you know, the lawnmower parent who, who, you know, rides the lawnmower in front of the kids so they don't have to go into the high grass at all. And I'm thankful for that. You know, I still wish I could have played. I still wish I could play now, but my body is so wrecked. I can't do anything, but I it's, I'm, I'm thankful for it, but only in retrospect at the time, it was a curveball that, it almost knocked me out of the game. It was a curveball so that was a slider. It was a that's just it. I was hoping people will catch up on catch on to that. That it's like a, I'm mixing categories here, but so you know, I um, it took me a while, like I said, to come to terms with it, and I don't know how long I would have lasted in the life of faith with that old version of God. And I know many people, friends of mine, who who, who don't have any sort of uh, belief in God at all, and I, I know why they don't. But part of it is harboring this notion of the man upstairs who, who just sort of zaps you with blessings occasionally. And I just found life is more complicated than that, and God's more complicated than that. So, mm-hmm. to me, that was a very, very big moment. I was, you know, twenty-one at the time. So those are some of the questions that you had out of that slider uh, that you had about God. We both, you know, with our with our podcasts and everything, we both have people that are listening to us that come out of conservative Christianity and are starting to have these big questions about their faith. What are some of those main important questions that you keep hearing over and over that a lot of these folks are having? Oh, yeah. Um, I think one is, why is God so perpetually angry all the time in the Bible? Mm-hmm. That's, you know— which comes across in things like divine violence and things like that, which, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've read people try to say that's not a big deal. It's a big deal. It's a huge deal that when you have God portrayed with in places with almost a hair trigger kind of reaction to things and, and violence seems to be God's go-to means of conflict resolution and throughout parts of the Bible, it, you look at that and say, okay, the only thing keeping me in this game is a threat of going to hell. But if you take that away, it's like, well, what am I doing here? And, you know, then you have to start thinking differently. So so that's a big one. Um, related to that is God and human sexuality. Mm-hmm. That's it. And I think, you know, why do bad things happen? Which is a big issue. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's that's still an issue. It's still something that when people say, I just, what is God doing, you know, when all these chaotic things happen and people just randomly get run over or kidnapped or or, or whatever? And I don't take that lightly. I think those are very big questions. So, and they keep coming up. And I think if anything, what they should do is help us see how inadequate our categories of God are to deal with those kinds of questions. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. 
Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. You mentioned earlier that this book is mostly reflections about God, but obviously there's Bible pieces in it. Uh, there, there's going to be in a Pete Enns book. Oh, yeah. One of the things that I've noticed for a lot of these folks that have questions about their faith, the, the biggest challenge for them, it seems to be, is the Bible. You know, they really just cannot, like the questions that they're having are just not easily compatible with the what they understand the Bible to be. And as a Bible scholar, you've been wrestling with those kinds of questions for a long time. When you began to start having, having these questions about your faith, you know, a lot of other people that start to have those questions eventually get to a point where they're like, you know what, the Bible is such a challenge, I'm just going to, I'm going to abandon it. When you started having these questions, what when you started to engage the Bible as a scholar, what made you want to embrace the Bible? What made you not want to abandon the Bible because of the kind of questions you were engaging with the Bible while you were having all the, you know this these questionings and doubts about your faith? Well, I mean, I, yeah, I can only answer that for myself, and I think that what happened is because I was doing this in graduate school, really, and a little bit in seminary, but also graduate school, I was given I was given a historical framework within which these sorts of questions make sense. Let, let, so let me try to explain what I mean by that. People abandon the Bible, and for very good reasons, I think. I mean, I, I tell my students, you might just need a break from the Bible for a year. Just don't feel like you have to read it, because it's been traumatizing. It's been um, you know, a bit toxic for you. It's been weaponized against you. Maybe you just need a break. But I, I, I keep finding how the real problem just isn't the Bible. It's, mm. it's what we were taught to expect it to do, which is to give us clear answers. And if you look at the Bible within a historical backdrop, we can see, and this is not hard to see, just an English Bible, just reading it cover to cover, you can see it how biblical writers clearly lived in different times and different places and had different experiences of God, and they wrote about God in ways that made sense to them. And sometimes biblical writers, they disagree with each other. They contradict each other. Sometimes they don't, but sometimes they do. And what we're seeing in the Bible is not so much a rule book dropped out of heaven, but what we're seeing is an anthology of literature that spans, depends on who you ask, but you can certainly make the case as much as maybe twelve to 1,400 years, if you, both testaments of the Christian mm-hmm. Bible, that reflect different time periods, different, uh, uh, different agendas, different purposes for writing. And we see this, this beautiful hodgepodge of 
of texts that some of which resonate with us at certain times in our lives, some of which is like, I can't read this ever again. It's too boring or it's too difficult. Uh, you know, to me, that's that's the way forward of just sort of like trying to demystifying the Bible as this perfect text that speaks to you directly right now where you are, rather than a text that takes a lot of work for us to bridge the horizons, you know, between our present and the antiquity of the Bible. And, you know, I could go on and on about this, uh, Mason, but uh, one of the things that really has struck me over the years is how it has always been the case that the Bible has to be engaged creatively at different times in history. And we, mm -hmm. we know this from even the New Testament writers themselves and how they handled their scripture, which is the Christian Old Testament. They got pretty darn creative with it because there's something that they had to talk about in their moment in time, which for them was Jesus. Um, you know, for us today, we have to talk about embodiment or we have to talk about the size of the cosmos or the the, the microcosmos, which is, mm -hmm. you know, difficult to understand or, or, um, you know, why of mass bends light and space, you know, <laughs> and gives us gravity, all, all this kind of stuff. Those are the things we have to think about. So when we try to engage this Bible, which is an ancient book, which has a, a, a long tradition of investigation and interaction, but then we have to do something now we're going to sort of draw from that tradition, but at the end of the day, we may have to say things that no one's ever said before mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. God. And my point is that there's really good biblical precedent for doing that very thing. I think right. the Bible models for us this ongoing need to, I mean, the fancy word is to actualize the text in your own context, to bring it into your own reality, rather than never do that just obey what it says. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think we're missing the, the, the beauty of the Bible, the, the, the wisdom of the Bible, which models for us this ongoing hermeneutical theological thing that we have to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I work for a United Church of Christ uh, seminary, and in that denomination, their sort of slogan is that God is still speaking. And I often think about when we go about our lives, when you go on your walks and you see all the, the, the plants and all the birds and all the things, in some way, shape, or form, you could talk about like God speaking through that. And in a lot of ways, that's scripture in front of you. You know, we, I don't think we should think of Scripture as just something that is a written text, but that there's Scripture that we're encountering all the time in our lives, because all the Scripture is in the Bible is um, what people think about God, and God is speaking through their lives, and that got written down. But there's mm -hmm. a lot of other things that are going on in our world today uh, that might not be written down, but God is still speaking through, uh, just mm -hmm. as God was speaking through all the people that wrote right. pieces and bits of the Bible. And science being one of those things, I absolutely. Think, that that yeah, and and nature, and I mean, these are old um, affirmations. I think on the part of people of faith that you know the heavens declare the glory of God, right? Psalm nineteen, whatever it is, and it is Psalm nineteen. But the thing is that our heavens have changed dramatically since this was written around three thousand years ago, and and now the heavens sort of freak us out or the heavens raise all sorts of questions, or 
you know, the heavens include, again, subatomic particles and weird things that they do. And again, to me, that illustrates the point. My, my life of faith is not about simply going back to Psalm 19 and saying, well, that settles the question. It's more, okay, how do I do that today? And what does that look like? And will it look different? And of course, it's going to look very, very different. So it, it's not so much, and again, I I know that people listening probably will will uh, resonate with this a little bit, but what I've heard, what I heard for many years was any sort of thought you have, any any idea, any experience you have that makes you think differently about God, you always have to measure that up against the Word of God. Mm. And if the Bible doesn't support that in some way, <clears throat> then you're probably wrong. And my response to that now is, well, do you really expect the Bible to speak into everything that is around us today that we're, exper- we're experiencing? There are things that are around us all the time that affect how we look at reality that the biblical writers had absolutely no inclination of remotely whatsoever, forget it, right? So we're abdicating our theological responsibility. We're abdicating our faith responsibility by not engaging the world we live in, which means taking seriously our experiences and our intuitions. Mm -hmm. And the the thing about the curveballs, coming back to the book, it's the curveballs that remind us of that. Mm-hmm. That your theology is inherently unsettled; it's inherently incomplete. Be thankful for that. We're never going to exhaust this. We can't wrap our arms around God and say, "Now we have it all." It's 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 worth more of our attention than just that. Mm-hmm. Again, speaking along those lines of the curveballs and the questions of faith that happen out of that. Not only is the Bible something that's really difficult, uh, or you know, you, a lot of people who start to have questions about their faith really can't reconcile with the Bible. Another piece to that is sometimes they can't reconcile with Jesus. They start to think that if they're going to have start having having these questions about their faith, means that they no longer can follow Jesus. But the thing is, I think about following Jesus is that maybe questioning your faith, having doubts about your faith might be one of the most faithful ways to follow Jesus. So yeah. what are your thoughts about that, of question, having questions about your faith, having doubts about your faith, actually being one of the many ways one can follow Jesus? I mean, I think it's, we don't want to valorize doubt as if it's like, I'm so cool because I'm doubting God. Look at me, how sophisticated I am. I don't believe in that doubt. I'm just going to doubt Doubting is is difficult and it's painful. Um, it is a curveball itself, and but that's exactly what makes it so worthwhile and so helpful. And it's I think inevitable if we're if we're honest and authentic and aware of our own selves, it's hard to avoid that, right? So I think having those doubts, it, it those things are difficult to connect with the New Testament. I'm going to just say that very bluntly, because the New Testament is a very triumphant moment in this history of the faith of Abraham, because, you know, Jesus died, Jesus is raised, and he's coming back real soon. So hold on to the faith. Don't hang out with people who might lead you astray, because they were expecting Jesus. I think this is very obvious in the New Testament. They were expecting Mm -hmm. Jesus to come back 
like not in thousands of years, but like really soon, which is why Paul in First Thessalonians had to sort of calm people down and say, okay, listen, I know your loved ones have died. It's taken a little longer than we thought, but here's what's going to happen. So he sort of creates a scenario of including things like the rapture and all that stuff. So, but I think the the reality of doubt to me comes across much more clearly it's in John's gospel, Downing Thomas and stuff like that. It's at the end of Matthew's gospel where, you know, the resurrection scene and, you know, some people saw Jesus, but others didn't believe. And and Matthew doesn't explain that. He doesn't like try to justify or argue against. It. He's just sort of laying it out that some people had trouble with this, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of doubt in the New Testament, but in the Hebrew Bible, you have to read lament psalms. You have to read some parts of the prophets. You have to read Job, which throws into the furnace these notions of retributional theology. You have to read things like Ecclesiastes. And the the beauty of the Old Testament, if anybody's wondering why you should bother reading the Old Testament, here's one reason. This story spans hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years Plenty of time for things to go wrong. Plenty of time to sit around waiting. When's God going to show up and do something? We connect in that sense more with the Hebrew Bible than with the New Testament because we're in this multi-millennial waiting period where it just seems like God's not around a lot of time, right? Mm-hmm. And just and you ask yourself those same questions, and I think in that sense we're in good company, you know. So. So for me, doubt is more of a sacred moment that you should never brag about mm. because it's painful. It's it's disorienting and nobody likes it, but it's inevitable. And I think the purpose of it is to push us beyond our own, our own complacency. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems that that kind of, again, like the, the sort of questioning, the questioning and even the sacredness of doubt is something that you see Jesus do. And I think that's just because he comes out of that Jewish tradition of, if you know anything about Jews, they all disagree with each other because there's always this questioning and, and again, this sort of sacredness of doubt happening uh, with their faith. And and you see Jesus very much doing that. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's why I think in a lot of ways, it actually would be really faithful for us to maybe rethink about our faith uh, and not be just kind of stuck in our ways about how we think about uh, the Christian faith, because certainly Jesus was not doing that with his own faith. Yeah, and I, and I would add, to, I agree with that, and I would say too, because I always have in the back of my mind people who feel they're better than others because they have doubts. You know, right. I mean, I've I've come across that. I've probably done it myself, and I just don't like it because the doubting it should also encourage in us a sense of humility because we're dealing with mystery here, and mm-hmm. you just you have to wear it gently and pass through it realizing it's it's again is a sacred moment but it's not yeah I, like you know when i see people online you know the term deconstruction is a bit overused although it's fine but um well i'm deconstructing are you when you say it like that i'm not sure that's actually what's happening here i think mm-hmm. you know deconstruction and doubt are things that happen to us we don't go looking for them they just happen and we're fine one minute, 
And then the next minute, everything is coming apart. And we don't know how we got from point A to point B. I think those are sacred moments. And almost that would move us towards silence and not broadcasting how enlightened we now are because we've left you know aside this thing from our youth right. or inherited faith or whatever. Because implied in, in, in doubt is that you were wrong at one point. And if you were wrong at one point, it might uh, be worthwhile to be a little humble about it. <laughs> True. And, and to, to then embrace warmly that being wrong is, well, that's just going to happen. Yeah. You know, it's just going to happen. And, and not because we're rebels and have sinful hearts, but because we're infants. You know, it's like mm -hmm. children who are wrong about what their parents do. They simply don't have the bandwidth to truly understand what I'm talking about good parents here, not, not dysfunctional ones, but they don't have the bandwidth to understand really what mom or dad do all day. And they have these childish notions. And I have childish notions of God all the time. I just want to be open to the fact that maybe they're childish and I need to keep my eyes and ears open to see what has to change. Mm-hmm. And even that thing it changes into, I'd like to think, is a more expansive thing that maybe is pointing me in a good direction. But even that's not going to be the end of it. And again, you know, my own feeling, I don't know how you feel about this, Mason, but my own sort of conviction is that um, we don't really know what happens to us when we die. I do think consciousness keeps going that's that's my opinion and i'm not alone in that um but i i'd like to think that we are going to keep being surprised by the one from whom all existence has happened you know i mean it's sort of like it's it's a well that can't run dry very quickly as far as i'm concerned mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so one of your pete peeves I was waiting all day for that one. One of your Pete peeves, obviously, is kind of the way people brag about doubt. One of my Pete peeves is that when people start to have these questions about their, you faith, can't have you, Pete peeves. You can have pet peeves. I can have only Pete you can. Peeves. Okay, you can. You only yeah. you can have them. All right, great. Pete peeves. My Pete peeves. And your 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 pet peeve. Okay. One of my pet peeves then yeah. is that uh, I get a little annoyed when people start to have these questions about their faith. And then it doesn't actually change the way they live in the world. Mm. So, for example, yeah. I've totally seen a lot of people who are, you know, come from that conservative Christian world, and then they quote unquote deconstruct, if you will. Those are those their words. And yet, when it all comes down to it, they still hold very conservative politics, but they're just nicer about it, right? Mm -hmm. I've totally seen that happen, and so I'm really interested in like how, like what you would say in your own life how the questioning of your faith has changed the way you actually live in the world. And that might look something very political, maybe not. I don't know, however you want to interpret that. But I do think there is some sort of like political dimension or like how we live dimension that happens after mm -hmm. or while we are questioning our faith. You mean like an ethical dimension maybe yes. or something like that. All those things come together. But yeah, I think, I think the people you describe there, and again— for every finger pointing out there, four pointing, pointing back at me, but they haven't deconstructed their fundamentalism. And that just rears its head in some other iteration where, you know, I was less sure about this, but now I'm super sure about 
this other thing and it's better, but I'm really, I still have, I'm still hooked in having to know things and being certain and things like that. So I think that's the, I've, I've seen that a lot too, but I think for me, I am less interested in being right with people and more interested in trying to listen to what they have to say. And that's not easy for me. That's, you know, I'm a, left brain German white male academic. I never had a chance in this life. I just, I'm always thinking and analyzing and, and I want to, I, I like ideas and I want to sort of hone ideas and, and make them better. And, and ideas help me get through life. And not everyone is an idea person. And I, I fully respect that. So I'm, I'm trying to engage with people respecting their history and their humanity and that they might not even care what I think. And that's fine, you know. So, to me, that's that's a big part of this. I, I don't. Uh, it's alerted me to my tendency to look down on people who might not think about things the way that I do, or might not believe the same things that I have. A couple of stories in the book about that too. But I, I, I don't mind saying. I think it's making me a better person. You know, not that I'm earn. It's not a better person to earn my way to heaven. It's just. Mm-hmm just to be around people, you know, mm-hmm. and, and to, to love them and, and to just be the best version of myself that I can. And, and for me, it's my, it's my f- evolution in faith that has helped me towards that. And and to me, that's a big sign, whether what you're doing is, is a helpful thing or not, if it makes you grouchy. And I understand that too, because I've been grouchy about things in my faith if if it makes you grouchy, I just wonder whether it's actually something that's helping you to make you a better human or not. Mm-hmm. People love their practical applications. I used to be a youth pastor, so I also love my practical applications. So for listeners who are questioning their faith in the midst of life's curveballs, what would you recommend them to do besides buy and read your book? <laughs> I, th- I think probably the most important thing is to find a community of people who mm. accept this as a normal part of the life of faith. And um, of course, I get a lot of questions like, where do I find that? I live in such and such a place. How do I find it? It might be helpful to engage online with podcasts, you know, such as yours and maybe such as ours and many others. And to join things like whether they have Slack groups or some sort of conversations and you can start connect. Oh my goodness. You're only half an hour for me. You know, you can start finding mm-hmm. people that way because I think the the personal connection is very, very important to be a part of a church that respects you for where you are and who you are and isn't trying to get you to align quickly with you know, a cookie cutter mentality of faith. Mm-hmm, so I, mm-hmm. I, I really think the biggest thing is other people, however that can happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I can testify that I testify. Uh, I can testify that I have made hundreds of friends through that. You know, I, I was one of those people that was listening to Bible, nor- Bible for normal people, homebrewed Christianity. And just because I started having all these questions, I was going into seminary and was really, really curious about all these ideas and also found a lot of other people who were interested in those same ideas and became really good friends with them. And even outside of 
talking about and hanging out over those ideas, we do lots of other things together, uh, right. cook food and go to concerts and all the things. And it's yeah, really cool. Just have fun. Yeah. It, like you just have fun and you just become regular friends, even outside of that context of questioning right. your faith. And it, it, it is right. really cool that you get that experience. Uh, and I, I, again, I can testify that that is absolutely something that can happen in one's life. Right. Right. And it's important because I think going it alone, it, it, I just, I, I, it's not meant to be that way. I mm -hmm. think, you know, even yeah. for introverts, you still need other human beings occasionally. Yes. So. Occasionally. Just once in occasionally. a while. Occasionally. Every, the fourth Thursday, the fifth Thursday of each month <laughs> from 12 to 1230. Very liturgical. The tagline of my podcast is exploring, inspiring, and liberating theologies. How do you hope Curveball inspires and liberates its readers? I just hope that people feel the permission to, not that they need it for me, but it's sometimes nice just to hear other people say things, right? That's why mm -hmm. you write books or give podcasts. But I just hope people can feel as the normalcy of not questioning the integrity of their own existence as they work through their faith. Mm. Um, and again, to learn humility, not every idea that everybody has is gold, but if it's what you're thinking at the moment, you might have to go with that. You know, if it's something that's really meaningful to you, it may fly in the face of what other people tell you. It may fly in the face of what I think. But if it's where you are, I think God honors authenticity. And I think that begins with owning our own experiences and saying, listen, this this happened and I can't ignore it. I have to take this very, very seriously. And I don't know where this is going to go, but I just need to follow this through. and. Hopefully, to do that with a sense that, again, God's not looking over our shoulders saying, make sure you come up with the right answer, but maybe out ahead of us saying, come on, you're, that, you made those first two steps, that's fantastic. Mm. But there are a lot more steps that have to be taken. Do you want to take them or not? How, how brave are you? Right? In other words, I think that there's a lot of um, a courage that's involved Absolutely. in in being a person of faith. It's not it's not easy because we want to stay still, but faith doesn't ever let us stay still for very long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Last question, Pete: How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Um, well, you got the whole social media thing, so Facebook, Twitter, easy. If you people are sophisticated with your technology and whatnot, you can find me pretty quickly. <laughs> we also have a website. The not Bible all of us are, you know, just turned 62. So, you know, not all I of know, us sure. grew up with VCRs and whatever, all that nonsense. <laughs> Which I still was. can't work right. But anyway, <laughs> um, but the BibleForNormalPeople.com is our website. Everything We have a new platform. We just made that a, a few months ago, which is really nice. And you can find there all sorts of stuff, the books that I've written and Jared, uh, uh, you know, the co-host of, of the podcast as well. You can find the podcast episodes, you can find courses and you can join. It doesn't, it's really not, we, we've tried to keep these costs down. I think there's one level that's $5 a month. And then, then there's a, I should know this, a $12 a month uh, thing that gets you access to everything. You know, so it's like, we want people to find a community to engage us there. So um that's that's the way to, that's the place to go that's love it love it pete unbelievable book uh you know i get people reaching out to me all the time who are in those beginning stages of of questioning their faith and this will definitely be one of those books that i recommend as they journey um because we we all need people to be along with and and 
and I think the great thing about books is yeah. it can certainly be a resource at, that accompanies you as you go through this this journey of questioning your faith. And so uh, I'm just really thankful for it. And I know other people who will reach out to me about it will also be thankful for it. So thank you so much. That's great. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. A lot of fun. If you'd like to connect with Pete and his work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. <laughs>